actually think now is a good time to buy. Why were you buying when there were 22 offers? Now there's three offers. Like you're literally, you're, you're like, now you're getting what you want and you're basically going to the sideline. So I actually think that now is, is a very interesting uh, potential time for people that are like, I've got buyer fatigue. It's like, no, like now you shouldn't have buyer fatigue. Now is the time to actually push harder. Building a successful real estate career requires you to adapt, pivot, and constantly master new skills. We're Katie and Daniel Steinfeld. We've built our own innovative brokerage. And in this podcast, we've assembled actionable tips and strategies that you can implement to take your business to its maximum potential. It's time to level up. Level up. All right. Well, we are here. Thanks to everybody who is coming in and already waiting. I'm Daniel. Katie is not here, much to the chagrin of everyone watching, but you do get a more than suitable substitute in Elon Weintraub from the Mortgage Outlet, who is our special guest today. And if you don't already know and love him in an hour's time, you will. Uh, he is a mortgage guru. He is a finance pro. He understands what you need to know and is here to answer your questions and chat with me about for the next little bit about mortgages, specifically in the GTA in Toronto, where I know a lot of you are. But uh, to anybody anywhere, this is a lot of conceptual stuff that I think will be a great service to you if you're dealing in real estate in any sense. So welcome to the show, Elon. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Fantastic. So do you want to tell us a bit uh, before we get started about, I, I know I gave you a sort of a, a back of the napkin intro there, but do you want to tell us a bit about what you do and your, and your company? Sure. So um, I'm Elon Weintraub. I'm one of the two co-founders of Mortgage Outlet. Um, we started about seven years ago. Uh, we're uh, quite a large uh, mortgage brokerage. Uh, as a matter of fact, we're beyond Toronto, beyond Ontario. We're pretty much um, licensed nationally. So we actually do a lot of work in like BC, Alberta, beyond. Um, and uh, we fund over a billion dollars a year in mortgages. Um, so we have access to a lot of lenders. Um, my business partner is, um, is an accountant. I have my MBA. So we take this craft very seriously. Uh, you know, the way we articulate it is you have an architect, you have an accountant, you have an attorney and you have a mortgage broker. And we, we feel that it's a, it's, it's a proper profession. It's not just like, Oh, I was bored and I got my mortgage license. Like that's not uh, what we're about. We keep a very high standard. Uh, we work with big banks. We work with credit unions. We work with trust companies, insurance companies, um, B lenders, alternative lenders, private lenders, commercial. Uh, so we pretty much do it all. So, well, we have a lot to talk about, so I'm happy you yes, did it all. Yes. <laughs> well, actually, one thing one thing I should add is um, we we actually have a very deep uh, client centric um, focus as part of our culture and our mission. And um, if you look at our Google reviews, um, and we've won a lot of industry awards, it is based on you know I would say our philosophy is uh, you know outstanding client service based on outstanding competence. Uh, so when I say competence. We want to give you the best, best advice possible um, so that you make the, the proper decision. And we're very direct. We don't beat around the bush. Um, you know, we're here to tell you the good news, the bad news, everything, different options, different ideas, and then let you decide. So, Absolutely. Well, and, and that's important because I think in, in both of our professions, it's and really any any profession, I mean, trust and relationship building is such a big factor that is important. And we've got, I think, choices in both of the work that we do that are not so cut and dry. It's not just a, here's the way to do it all the time. It's about listening to people and kind of giving them the, the competence, like you say, and letting them call that what it is for them and then supporting Absolutely. them. In that. So, okay. Well, I mean, if we're going to, if we're going to talk about choices, um, sure. <laughs> I mean, they're, there are a lot, and, and I, I'm going to dive into the market as well. We talked about that uh, for a second before we started, but um, if we talk about the economy and the way things are going, I know the forever hot button question with everybody is going to be when it comes to mortgages, first and foremost, fixed versus variable. And 
Um, I know interest rates are, they've gone up, they're going to go up. We don't know how much they're going to go up. Um, but it's, it's, I, I've heard a lot of interesting stories and things and you see day to day, all these different situations people are in. Take us through, I guess, your thoughts on the fixed versus variable debate. Sure. And then as well, maybe on a scenario basis, you know, where maybe you might lean one way or another, depending on where people might be at in, uh, in their certain situations. Yeah, so um, that's definitely one of the, the big questions. Is it, and as a matter of fact, I actually have a one-hour seminar uh, I share with my really kind of clients that want all the information. But there's, there's, you know, kind of a framework. And the first framework I say, the first part is like, it really depends uh, it depends on you, your situation, your needs, your your future financial prospects. Um, I will say that you know, well over eighty percent of the time, I do recommend variable. Um, ultimately, the client decides. But there's a lot of misconceptions about fixed versus variable, and that's why. So let's say you call me today and you're like, "Hey, Elon, we just bought a house for a million dollars. Like, we want to know should we go fixed or variable?" So. The, the way that I would start off is, you know, if I rewind about a, like two years ago, earlier on in the pandemic, um, or maybe, yeah, around that time, fixed rates were around 1.5% fixed and variable rates were around 1.5% variable. In that context, when fixed rates were 1.5% and variable rates were 1.5%, I probably would have pushed a little more to be like, Hey, like 1.5% fixed for the next five years. Like that's incredible. Um, but if I look at today, variable rates, cause the bank of Canada just raised their rate, you know, in the last week or so, um, variable rates today are around call it 1.5, 1.8%, somewhere in that range, but fixed rates are around 3.19%. So right off the bat, let's just say it's 1.75% variable to go from 1.75% variable to 2%, to 2.25, to 2.5, to 2.75, to 3, to 3.25. There's like five, six, seven rate hikes. Now, if you really get into the mathematics and the nitty gritty of the mortgage, the way an amortization schedule works is the most interest you pay is in the first month and then the second month and then the third month. So even if rates slowly start to rise, you are saving so much money in the first month and in the first year and what have you, that even if rates go to four or 5% in year four or five, you're still way ahead. Mm -hmm. The other thing is, um, again, this is a misconception. There are some variable rate mortgages. One of the biggest fears that borrowers have is rates start to go up and up and up and my mortgage payment goes from like 1,000 to 1,200 to 1,800 to 3,500. So first of all, there are some lenders that will keep your mortgage payment the same. So if your mortgage payment is 2,000 a month and rates go up, your next mortgage payment is 2,000 a month. But behind the scenes, what they do is they, they put a little more of that $2,000 towards the interest and a little less towards the principal but you're managing your cash flow because you've got your $2,000 a month, month in and month out. The other thing I would tell some of my risk averse clients is let's just say, for example, again, fixed versus variable, because the interest rate is much lower with a variable rate today, let's say your monthly payment is $2,000 a month with variable, but it's $2,500 a month with fixed. One of the ways to mitigate some of the concerns is you take the $2,000 a month variable, and as soon as you get the mortgage, you get the keys to your house, you call your bank and you say, I wanna pretend that I had the fixed rate of 3.29. I want you to increase my monthly payment to $2,500 and I had that fixed rate. And all of a sudden now that extra $500 goes right into your principal. Now, the other thing is, and again, very few people talk about it or understand it. The banks want you to take a fixed rate. Why do they want you to take a fixed rate? Well, there's three simple letters, which is IRD. IRD stands for interest rate differential. And what this basically means is that if you break your fixed rate mortgage in the middle of your term, in the middle of your five years, um, the penalty could be um, punitive. It could be substantial. I've seen penalties of $80,000 and higher. 
So imagine, and again, let me be clear, nobody thinks they're going to break their, their five-year fixed rate. It's like, oh, my kids go to school across the street and I love the neighborhood. Well, guess what? You know what? Life changes, you know, um, maybe your kid needs to transfer schools, whatever it is. Um, you get married, you get divorced, you, you know, you have triplets unexpected. Um, all of a sudden, you need to break that mortgage. Well, now you're hit with a forty, fifty, sixty thousand dollars penalty. And I've had clients call me and it's kind of funny. They're like, Hey, Elon, I got your name from Tony. Um, I want to, I want to get uh, a new mortgage. I want to get a new variable rate mortgage. And that's a very unusual way to open a conversation. So I'm like, Oh, you want a variable rate mortgage? Why don't you tell me about that? And they're like, I had to break my mortgage. The penalty was $37,000. I'm never getting a fixed rate mortgage ever again. Um, and again, this is something that no one talks about. But to be clear, um, you know, it's kind of like a car accident. Nobody thinks they're going to get in a car accident. But statistically speaking, people will get in a car accident. So the way to think about it is a lot of people think that fixed is safer than variable. But fixed has different risks than variable. Now, I'll even keep going. And it's funny because even within two weeks, you know, I would tell clients, you know what, Daniel, your rate is 1.75. It's going to go to two. It's going to go to 225. It's going to go to 2.5 and on and on and on. But literally what's happening in the world, and this seems to be a trend, like with Ukraine and Russia and war, like oil prices, there's now talk of a recession. Mm -hmm. Well, talk of a recession interest rates might actually stay lower. So um, again, uh, you know, I could talk about this one topic for an hour, but, you know, in general, I'm a big advocate of variable. Um, the client needs to make the decision, but, you know, the way I articulate it is consider going variable, pretend like you had that 3% fixed rate, increase your monthly payment, increase your biweekly payment. And like rates are going to rise, but like, it's okay. You're going to select a lender maybe that the rates, the monthly payment doesn't change. And the other thing I tell my clients, if you're buying a house today, do you not think you're going to be making more money in two years or three years? Most people, when they real estate, they're optimistic about the future. They're optimistic about their income. Like most people are not going to make that kind of investment when they're like, oh, my business is really bad and my life is really bad. And I think things are good. Like people are like, yeah, I'm doing well and I'm going to get promoted and my business is growing. So even if rates go up and even if your payment goes up, which it doesn't go up that much, you're going to be way better off in a year or two. So um, anyway, those are some of the reasons. Um, there are many, many other reasons, but those are some of the reasons why I'm a big advocate of um, a variable. Yeah, they, they all make sense. And that last point you touched on, I was just listening to people talking about the same thing yesterday, that there is a school of thought that even though all we're talking about is all these inevitable increase, 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 and maybe it's seven, maybe it's whatever, like maybe it gets to that level. Yeah. Nobody's talking enough yet about the fact that we're still and consistently in a really shitty global environment that could lead to who knows what, like we saw what the yeah. last two years have done. So very yeah. good point there. What one question on that before I get off fixed versus variable uh, yeah. and apologies that I keep looking this way. It's just if questions are coming no, on the chat, sure. <laughs> it's, I'm, my ears are working. My eyes are all over the place. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you find that a lot of the variable, like you said, people call you and ask for it when people come up for renewal, is that yeah. the trap a lot of people are in when they're already unfixed and they don't think to actually ask the question. Like I heard, I know when I come up for renewal, the bank just calls and we could talk about bank versus broker also, yeah. Yeah. but the bank kind of calls and says, Hey, you're up for renewal. Here's the rate. Yeah. And that's it. Right. And, and for a lot of people, myself included until recently, I kind of say, yeah. cool, <laughs> you know, maybe you try to get a bit of a discount or something yeah. like that. But is that a trap that is is common in terms of why more people aren't jumping into variable? Because your logic is pretty sound for anybody who takes a step back and just says, right, why would I lock in for five years at one and a half or more than what I'm getting elsewhere? Well, so uh, there's a couple of thoughts there. And I actually want to maybe even rewind and talk a little bit about myself personally. Um, I drive a Volvo. My wife drives a Volvo. And my first mortgage before I got into the industry was a 10-year fix. I thought you were going to say your mortgage was with Volvo Canada. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. No, but but the reason I say that is I don't like taking massive risks. And when I got my 10-year fixed mortgage, which was over 10 years ago, it was around 4.65%. Wow. I'm like, I'm like, I'm the smartest person of all time. I just got a 10-year like I can't tell you how proud I was of myself. Now, now that I got in the industry and I've been in the industry for many years. Like it's actually a joke, but the 10 year fixed mortgage is considered to be the worst mortgage that you can get. And part of the reason is, is that I talked about IRD, the IRD on a 10 year fixed, it could be like as bad as the five year fixed is the 10 year could be shockingly um, terrible. Like, like six figures. It could be absolutely. Now, I don't like taking risks. That's why I say it. But even if you look at the broader risk, there's risk of fixed, there's risk of variable. I would go variable all day long. Now, what you kind of asked me is, you know, about when you're up for renewal. Now, I mean, again, I'm this is like a big topic, but when you're up for renewal, I mean, the first thing is like generally, you shouldn't just renew. And there's, there's like two big reasons. Number one is you need to do a, a, an overall assessment of your financial position. Do you have debt? Do you have equity in your property? Do you need money? Are you planning to renovate? Have you topped up your RSPs? Uh, do you have student loans, car loans, RSPs? And then make a holistic assessment. Um, you know, getting, getting um, a, a simple renewal. Um, you know, let me, let me kind of give you a hypothetical example your bank says, Hey, Daniel, do you want a renewal? You know, here's an attractive rate and you're like, cool. And you're done. But I would have said, well, wait a minute, looking at your situation, I noticed you haven't topped up your RSPs and I noticed your car loan is at 3.9%. And I noticed that you've got this kind of nagging student loan that's been there. Like, let's clean it all up and throw it into a 1.7 variable. By the way, what, like, in, let, this is a very kind of personal discussion that I have. But, um, you know, the way I articulate it is I'd say, Daniel, inflation is three to 5% right now. Stock market returns conservatively are call it six to 8%. Why wouldn't you borrow more money at 1.7%? In no world does that not make sense. And, and again, I work with, you know, first time buyers, investors, wealthy clients, all these different segments. But a lot of my wealthy clients and high net worth and high income clients, um, they're borrowing more money. Like I have clients buying three, four, $5 million homes and they want to borrow 80% because they're like, why wouldn't I borrow money at 1.7%? So on a renewal, even if everything is stable, I would come back to you and say, well, have you considered borrowing money at 1.7? Inflation is three to 5% and you can invest it at six to 8%. And that resonates with a lot of my clients. For sure. The other thing is, is that realistically, your bank isn't going to give you the best deal because they're like, ah, oh, you know us, da, 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 da. But I have an expression, which is people are loyal to their banks, but their banks are not loyal to the people. They're not giving you a great offer. They're not, you know, like they're, they're in the business of business, right? So they're certainly not going to tell you that another lender has a better offer and they might not consider your broader, you know, strategic picture, which is to me essential. Absolutely. So, okay. I, I do want to get into the work of a broker versus a bank sure. for sure. Yeah. Um, and, and there's a lot of bouncing all over the place that so we've got, um, we've got a room full of realtors here though. Okay. And, and I want to rewind a bit to the world we're in and I'm going to, okay. I'm going to, Put a little, what do they call it? Putting a post-it, putting a stamp on on, on the banker versus broker. I don't know what yeah. the expression is. Whatever I'm doing. Sure. It's over here. We're going to grab it. Okay. In Park it. Parking lot. Park. Yeah, it's parked. Um, so obviously this market is consistently insane in different directions from the perspective of we're all professionals and probably have, definitely should have the best set of advice for our clients. However, we don't have crystal balls. Never will. Yep. Yeah. And one of the sad, um, I guess, things that have come out of this market in a lot of cases, especially when it's hot, is people feel like they can't go into a purchase with the ability to put things like a financing condition, things like that. And yep. because of that, uh, 
pre-approvals have become, depending on what side of the fence you're on, they've become either the golden ticket or a bit of a facade that get, makes us comfortable, but really doesn't mean much. And right. so what should we know? What is our best course of action in the environment we're in as realtors, sure. dealing in a tough environment with our clients? How well can we prepare them yet still not take ourselves out of play on some of these competitive properties? Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing I would say, it's kind of funny because you're taught as a realtor your entire career, make sure the client is pre-approved, make sure the client is pre-approved. Right? And that is a hundred percent correct. But unfortunately that is kind of morphed um, because pre-approval is like a marketing word. It, it doesn't really mean anything um, or it means different things to different people in different institutions. So what I kind of teach my realtors or, you know, kind of work with my realtors on is, are you pre-approved? Yes, I'm pre-approved, Daniel. Great. Did they look at every single document that you have? What do you mean? Did they look at documents? Well, did they look at your job letter? Did they look at your pay stuff? Did they look at your divorce agreement? Did they look at your down payment? Did they look at your tax returns? Um, well, no, they didn't. So the first question is, are you pre-approved? The next question is, did they look at all of your documents? Because you could do a pre-approval online in 40 seconds, but it means absolutely nothing. It means nothing. So the foundation of the pre-approval is have they reviewed all of your documents? And the way that I kind of articulate the process to my clients is, you know, getting a mortgage is kind of like going through airport security. Um, and you know what? You take off your shoes, you take off your belt, you pull out your laptop, they swab your laptop, you have a bottle of water, they throw out your bottle of water. And once you get through all that, you get to go on your beautiful vacation, right? So part of my job is to help you get through that airport security um, as fast as possible. Now, again, one of the reasons I like that analogy is, you know, you might say, but Elon, it's just a bottle of water. And what I tell you is, Daniel, you're going through airport security. You know, it doesn't matter that it's a bottle of water in the context of airport security. They don't care that it's a bottle of water. So like there's the real world and there's the mortgage world, right? There's the real world and there's airport security. Try to get a bottle of water through airport security. You're like, I'm going to drink it. I'm going to show you like I'm drinking it. They're like, it has to go out in the garbage. So part of my job is to help you get through. But going back to your question, are you pre-approved? And have all of the documents been reviewed? And the reason why all the documents need to be reviewed, it's like, oh, Elon, I forgot to tell you the, you know, the down payment is coming from Russia, but it's actually not even coming from my mom. I had to use a remittance service. And my mom, like, I don't want to find this out four days before closing. If I find this out four days, you know, before closing, that's going to be a big problem. So what I tell people is I need to know everything up front. Because if I don't know something, you might sneak it past me, but then it will get to the lender underwriter and then it will get to the manager and then it will get to the lawyer. And the farther along the, the process it gets, and it's like, oh, you know what? I actually was, I literally had a client the other day. Oh, I was married when I was 18. Uh, you know, we were married for four months, we're divorced, but like, there's nothing there. And again, there's no problem with that, but I don't want to, and he just put on his application, he's single. Um, and it's, you know, but I don't want to find that out like three days before closing. Like, again, that's like not a big deal, but if it's like, oh, by the way, I had a kid and like, I don't have a separation agreement and like, like that could become uh, a bigger problem. So, yeah. So, uh, the airport security analogy is good. As long as you're not cavity searching people, are you? That's not part of it. I mean, I mean, listen, sometimes it gets to the point with a lender where I'm like, do you want DNA, but like, you know what I mean? If, if, you know, what's this deposit? What's this? What's that? Like lenders want, they want information. Absolutely. So from the perspective of going into an offer situation, like a yeah. pre-approval, it's not a perfect document. I think everybody needs to understand pre-approval prior to a purchase doesn't necessarily mean things like appraisal won't work out, things like that won't right. work out. Right. Um, but in that context, from what you said, if someone is yeah. doing these steps to the best yeah. of their ability, that would be the advice then in terms of if, if I feel I need to go in without a financing condition, yeah. which we yeah. always would want to have one. Yeah. Um, from your so perspective. I, yeah. Like what, where does the comfort a, it, level lie? 
it took me many years to get to this answer, but I finally got an answer that I, that I feel comfortable with and that I can live with as a professional. So, um, you know, the first thing is, and, and this is like the foundation of my profession, and I think it's your profession as well, is like my role is to explain, give advice, you know, articulate clients' roles to decide. You know, if you show a, a, a stunning, you know, 600 square foot condo at the Four Seasons, and it's like a married couple and the, the they're expecting triplets, and they want to get the, the 600 square foot condo. And you're like, but maybe like a house is better when you're expecting triplets. At the end of the day, the client decides, the client makes that decision. So with a mortgage, what I do is, you know, I'm like, okay, Daniel, this is what we've done. We've reviewed your income, your down payment, your credit, everything looks outstanding. The mortgage is still subject to the bank's approval. Um, there will be an appraisal required. Um, now an appraisal, consists of two elements. And again, a lot of people don't understand this. The first thing is, is the house in good condition or the property? If, you know, there's mold and, and UV insulation and this and that and, and basement leaking and like that is a structural and, and issue. That's one issue. That the, the next issue is, will the house appraise? Now, first of all, I have a ton of ways to like negotiate with appraisers, maybe get second appraisers, because I'm not a bank, I work with many appraisers, um, to get that appraisal done. But ultimately, you know, the, the CMA is going to fall on the realtor to sort of justify the value at the end of the day with the client. And I say like, listen, we've done all the due diligence we can. You have two options. Option number one is to include a financing condition. Option number two is to go firm. Now, in general, in my experience as a mortgage broker, and you could talk with your realtor, if there are seven offers and you have a financing condition, you're extremely unlikely to get the property. And again, to be clear, imagine you are the seller and there are seven offers and six offers are firm and one is conditional. Would you as the seller consider that conditional offer? Probably not. So if you want to include a conditional offer historically, I, I believe you could buy property an hour north of Sudbury and an hour north of Sudbury, you could probably have a financing condition. But in the city of Toronto, which is literally one of the hottest real estate markets in the world, you generally do not. Now, a lot of my clients have like, I wish I could, you know, wave a magic wand and give you a five day financing condition, but that is not historically the reality. So it's up to you, the clients. And a lot of my clients go through this where they have to make their decision and they do what all, you know, buyers do or what buyers do is they make the decision to go in firm. And we have a ton of ways to mitigate. We have a ton of lenders. We have all this stuff ready to go. We can go to different appraisers. I can get automated value appraisers. I can go to, so there's a lot of different things. And ultimately, you know, the client can decide how they want to move forward. Absolutely. Well, yeah, that, that's, I think, the key to every decision we make is we can only do so much and it's our job right. to give them as much information as we're able to, but yep. we can't force their hand one way or the other. Um, I, I Just a couple of days ago, also, I ran into a situation, and, and I don't know if you see this a lot either, um, where we were in competition and did not have a financing condition. However, the seller was so concerned about appraisal that they went with the offer that had a deposit. We were more than a 5% deposit, but they were so concerned that these offers were getting too pricey that they figured the comfort of a 3X deposit, even without a financing condition, was more valuable to them as well. So, And, it, and I think that's, that's not... And let me be clear, because it's also contextual. Because if I rewind the last month, three months, six months, year, two years, 20 years, except for maybe 2017, appraisals have never really been an issue because the house down the street three weeks later sells for $50,000 more. So like no problem. But I think I'm hearing, and again, I work with a ton of realtors. I work with first time buyer realtors, luxury realtors, condo realtors, suburb realtors. I'm hearing that the market is is softening or changing or it's gone from insanely crazy hot to just like hot, hot. So you can't rely like that. If you bid 1.3, the next house that sell might sell for 1260. Um, one of the things that I do as a mortgage broker is 
I order the appraisal as soon as possible because I don't want to wait. And, and I'll tell you a personal story going back to my 10-year fixed mortgage. When I bought that house, um, I got a call, you know, five days before my closing. And it was like, yeah, the appraiser's making an appointment, blah, blah, blah. And this was kind of before anything, really. And I was just, I, I wasn't a mortgage broker. So I'm just like a consumer. I cannot tell you how furious I was that I was get, like the appraisal was five days before the closing. Like to me, that was just a massive and I'm much more knowledgeable and experienced now, but just as a consumer, I'm like, what if there's a problem? There's not. So one of the things that I do is order the appraisal right away. I don't want that comparable to sell in a week and a half and it's 80,000 less. And now I need to deal with a headache. So, but again, there's like 12 things I try to do to mitigate the risk. And again, knock on wood, I've never really had any issues uh, with appraisals, but I actually think now is a little bit of a, um, a gray area because if the market is going from insanely hot to just hot, that's exactly when you can, you can come up with some friction. Yeah. And you are right. That's what we're seeing. I think the, the, guaranteed dare i say guaranteed hot properties will stay where they are but i think this craziness that i just need a place and i'll pay what i need to pay even for the less than great properties is starting to come back down to earth on a lot of yep. things and we're seeing offer dates that aren't working out because i think sellers are they're wired to expect what they've seen like you said you know things like the neighbor just sold for one four so i should get one five following following this 20 percent a month trajectory but when the buyers finally stop and say, wait a second, there's more supply out there and, and uh, you know, maybe I can actually shop around for the first time in a year and a half, people aren't getting what they expect. So it's, it's, uh, it's interesting that, yeah, appraisal, I agree with you, will start to take a little bit more of a hold than it has for the last little bit. Um, so a lot of what you've been talking about, and I'm going to pull back from the parking lot now. Sure. The role of a broker versus the role of a bank. And as a consumer, as realtors advising consumers, yeah. I feel like there's sort of a very, very high level knowledge of what the difference is, if that. Can you jump into a little bit more about what the differences are, the benefits of one versus the other, and sure. things to consider when someone's making those decisions? Okay. I mean, I'm obviously biased, but I think broker like all day long. Um, now, again, it's funny you're pulling it from the parking lot because I have a very specific car analogy that I use, but... Like, you know, on the surface, mortgages seem very simple. What's your rate? Like, and we're done. But in the reality, um, you know, mortgages are more like cars, right? You have Acura, BMW, Audi, Tesla, minivan, Jeep, Ferrari. Like you have all these different things. Are you self-employed? Are you divorced? Are you incorporated? Do you own multiple rental properties? Um, a lot of people, again, when I look at the context, um, of the sharing economy, like people don't have normal incomes. Even a lot of realtors have created PRECs. So like their income kind of uh, tax situation is changing. So, you know, you might go into your local bank and they might say, hey, we can lend you $700,000 and the rate is 1.7% and whatever it is. But, you know, if, you know, another bank might lend you $800,000 Another bank might, you know, offer you a, a, an incentive, right? So there's, there's a lot of different ways to think about it. And, you know, again, given the sharing economy, given how people's jobs are changing, I get a bonus, I, I have student loans, I co-sign for my daughter's car, like getting to that level of insights. And that's why, you know, I said earlier on, I need to know everything about you and get all your documents. Um, because I, and when you walk into your bank, again, I kind of say it's like walking into a BMW dealership, you're going to get a good car and you're going to get a fair price. Like you might pay a little more, a little less, but you're getting a good car at a, at a, at a reasonable price. But the BMW dealer is not going to tell you that Audi is on sale this week. And they're not going to tell you that, wait a minute, Daniel, you, how many kids do you have, Daniel? Too many. <laughs> Too many. I know you have a lot. Is it four? We've got, we've got four, yeah. Four kids, right? Daniel, you have four kids. You actually might consider a minivan, but BMW doesn't sell minivans. But I really think you, like, literally, that's the example, right? You walk into a BMW dealership, 
Like they don't sell minivans and all of a sudden you're getting overpriced SUV. That's Re- what? Really good roof racks though. Roof racks. That's right. Yes. Yes. So yeah. So, so, you know, Audi is on sale this week. Minivan is better for your lifestyle. Uh, gas prices are through the roof. Have you thought about a Tesla? Right. They're not going to tell you that because they can only sell you a BMW. And the other thing is, frankly speaking, they're not going to tell you that BMW had a safety recall. Right. Hey, here's why RBC is not a good lender. Let me tell you about that. They're not going to say that to you. I mean, you know, maybe if you ask them or if you're like whatever, but most people are not going to ask that question. Whereas I'm like, here's why RBC is good. Here's why they're bad. Right. Like every bank, again, has different advantages and dis- di- di- different advantages and, uh, and disadvantages. So, yeah, absolutely. Okay. We got a question and it's from sure. Katie. She's oh. managed. She's here. Virtually. Okay. I mean, so great. Super great. We're virtual. She's even more virtual on the virtual right now. So she's, she wanted to build off of this, uh, what you're seeing in terms of the slowing of the, of the market, which we were talking sure. about. And we are seeing that she's saying yeah. she's wondering if you're seeing similar trends with new mortgage applications and do you find traditionally a slowdown in mortgage applications can be a sign of a real estate slowdown in general? Um, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm extremely busy. Like I, I, I feel, I mean, I'm going to brag, but I feel like I know what I'm doing and the word gets out. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to tweak Katie's question a little bit, which is I'm hearing that mortgage fraud is increasing, which is the sign. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen the movie, uh, the big short, one of my movies, but you know, one of the predictors of a slowdown is an increase in fraud. And I, I, I was actually called by the Globe and Mail and they're like, we're seeing this and this and this, um, is, is, you know, are you seeing this kind of fraud increasing? So um, I'm not seeing a slowdown. I mean, rates are still unbelievably low, um, you know, but I, I guess actually I have seen a few clients where we were working pre-approval and they're like, you know what? I've lost like nine bidding wars in a row. I'm going to just take a pause for a while. So maybe, maybe there actually is a slowdown, you know, that sort of classic word buyer fatigue. Um, I, I am actually seeing it now that, now that I think about it, there is a little bit of like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, and the funny thing is, and, and let me be clear, I have a very clear answer to this as a mortgage broker, hopefully as a real, as a real estate agent for you guys, you know, it's like, oh, I totally know where you're coming from. You lost seven bidding wars. I'm actually hearing that the market is, is still hot, but it's not crazy hot. I actually think now is a good time to buy why were you buying when there were 22 offers? Now there's three offers. Like you're literally, you're, you're like, now you're getting what you want and you're basically going to the sideline. So I actually think that now is, is a very interesting uh, potential time for people that are like, I've got buyer fatigue. It's like, no, like now you shouldn't have buyer fatigue. Now is the time to actually push harder. Right, right. Take advantage of the others with fatigue. <laughs> yeah, get in exactly, 100%. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about the mortgage process then, which sure. I know sounds very basic, but at yes. the core of all this is what yes. all of us are trying to push for people. They yes. need to borrow money yes. to purchase the yes. home they're trying to buy. So yes. for those who are listening, who maybe don't understand how this all works, we talked about yes. the pre-approval. Yes. What's the process once they get that document signed and they call you and they say, it's actually happening now. What do I do? What do you mean? What do you mean? It's actually like, oh, I actually bought the place. House. Like, like I was successful okay. and, and I've got the documents. Let's go. I close okay. in two months. Let's so, say. so I'll start at the beginning, but like you call me, Hey, Len, I want a pre-approval. I have a very, I have three words and, and I'm like, I, I, I say these words like hundreds of times a day to my team when I train them a very simple application and documents. So you call me for a pre-approval. I need your application and documents. We review it. Hey, Daniel, you're good. You know, 900,000, everything is good. You go shopping. You know, we keep in touch. Three weeks later, um, you're like, hey, I found this great house. I want to offer on it. Now, let me be clear. We speak before you offer, not after you offer. And you send me the MLS listing and I get the MLS listing and it says, 
handyman special, walk the lot only, do not enter, right? Renovator's dream. What? Renovator's dream. Right. So then we're going to have a very different conversation. But assuming it's like, you know, beautiful home, well-maintained, la, 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 la. Okay, Daniel, what are you going to bid? Well, my max price is 1.7. Okay, I enter the numbers. I put in the property taxes, the heating, make sure all the numbers line up. Okay, Daniel, based on this, you know, uh, I think the two best lenders will be uh, or or TD or National Bank. Um, kind of here's an approximation of rates of your monthly payment, um, you know, here are some advantages and dis- dis- disadvantages. You might try to buy that house. It's a bidding war. You fail. And then you try again and again and again. And like you said, you finally get the third house, third time's the charm. You call me in advance. You're good. You make the offer. You buy it. Then the next day or even that night, you send me the purchase agreement. I always ask my realtors and my um, clients to send me the purchase agreement in MLS Um the, the minute they get the house. And the, the reason why is that rates change all the time. And like, if Scotia is raising rates at midnight tonight, I have your file ready to go. The only thing I don't have is, is the final purchase price and the closing date. I will key it in at 11 o'clock at night so that it, like, I get it in under the old rates. Like, you know what I mean? It's kind of like, it's all ready to go. Um, with the clients, like, yeah, we're going to Scotia. We're going with Titi or Meridian or whatever, you know, um, uh, Desjardins, whatever it is. So they know what's happening. And then I send it in and depending on the lender, again, like everything, some lenders are very, very fast. Some are very, very slow. Um, you know, we could hear back in a day, we could hear back in three days, five, seven, 10 days, depending on the complexity of the file. If you're like self-employed and you own four rental properties and you've got a cash, you know, you're a plumber and you've got all these cash deposits, that's not going to be a one day, you know, approval that will take. So we hear back, we get everything. And then, you know, we'll order the appraisal. Um, we'll get all the documents submitted. We'll get the lawyer instructed and ultimately get the mortgage uh, completed. Okay. But 80% of the work, 90% of the work is done before you make the offer. Right. So, okay, so let's take that then, because we like to talk on this show a lot about Murphy's Law and how it finds everybody always. Okay, yes. um, Because shit goes sour from time to time. We do all the preparing. We've got all the documents. Things are good. You send it off confident for whatever reason, doesn't appraise or or market, whatever. Sure. Um, How do you then start to, obviously, you don't just say, sorry, it didn't work call somebody else. Like you're there, let's yeah. say we've got a month to go. I mean, part of yeah. both of our jobs is to keep people's stress levels down and to play therapist 100%. as much as it is professionals 100%. in our, in our yeah. right. Yeah. Um, is that where we start to talk about things potentially like B lenders or, or what are some of the solutions or some of the things you do to help, I guess, mitigate, but then once it happens to actually address the problem? Well, I mean, again, it's kind of like there's, you know, a multi-step process, but, you know, at Mortgage Outlet, I'm fortunate. I'm one of the owners. Um, We do a lot of volume with a lot of lenders. And the first step is to like call my people and, and fix the problem with the lender. Let me give you an example. Um, We submitted a file and um, you know, it was to TV um, and TD has a very unique way of underwriting. And again, this goes back to the whole like BMW, Audi, you know, Kia, like one of the things that TD does, which is somewhat unusual. So this was a married couple, moderate income, and the father was co-signing. The father's a very successful dentist, tons of money, no mortgages, like A++. Like the father just bought a ton of strength to the file. But the father had a million dollar mortgage, sorry, a million dollar line of credit at TD, which he never used, Hmm. never used it. But the way that TD underwrites their files, and again, this is why, in my opinion, a broker is so important. The way TD underwrites their files is they're like, well, we're going to assume that he owns, he owes a million dollars on that line of credit. Pretty much no other lender will do that. So when we sent it to TD, we knew that they were assuming a million dollars. And we and it was like, it was a bit of an exception. It was outside of their normal boundaries. 
but it was like not majorly out of their boundaries. And it's like this completely hypothetical, like he's boring a million dollars. Like it's just like guys. So we sent it to the underwriter to our main, you know, underwriter at TD and they declined it. And like, they just flat out declined it. And I called my person and I'm like, guys, like this is a TD client. It's a dentist. He owns his house free and clear. He owns a cottage free and clear. You're not declining this file. And then she went back to the underwriter. They submitted it. The underwriter um, sort of approved it to go to the risk team. Cause there's like a, which I knew it would need to go to risk. And after like a couple of weeks, it was finally approved. So like step one is like, I'm not giving up. Like I'm not, when we pre-approve a file, we're not just like, yeah, it should be fine. Like we know what's going on. So like first step is like, you know, frankly, leveraging our relationship, our power and whatever. But like, that was a strong file and, and when, you know, it's kind of funny, Daniel, but we have a, a little bit of a joke and it's kind of based on a true story you know, if you're an underwriter at some of these lenders, you are getting destroyed with volume, right? So the joke is, it's much faster for you to decline a file than it is to approve it, do a one-page write-up for the management team so that they can approve your approval. It's much faster for them to decline it, right? So anyway, like the first step is like push, you know, push the lender, push all that. And if not, like, again, we have you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 lenders. And, and I won't even, like, I didn't even involve the client at that point because again, like you said, and I agree hundred um, percent, we want to mitigate stress. I don't want to call the client and be like, oh, TV declined it. Like, what do we do? What do we do? Like, that's not, that's not a good client experience. Experience. Step two is, you know, let's go. And then I'll be like, you know what? BMW has been giving us some issues, but I have Mercedes ready to go. What do you think? And like, we can kind of do it that way, but there's a ton of things we can do to like push. Absolutely. And well, and this all comes back to a talk we've had before and we have the same talk in our profession. It's, it's funny. There's a lot of parallels, even though we do different things and we're associated, we're totally different types of professionals who know different things. And that's yeah. such a key element that, I think you should reiterate to everyone who's listening. I think everyone's sophisticated enough to understand, but we talk about how we don't give people advice on legal matters for a reason. Oh, like there's, there's professionals who are in yes. their lane for a reason. And I don't know if there's a reluctance to, to, I don't know if it's sharing contacts or a fear of whatever. We're all on the same team. And if you could speak a little bit to the relationship between a realtor and a mortgage broker and how that should yeah. look and what we should be sure. doing to serve our clients best. Cause our, our duty is to them, but we're not doing them the service we should, if we're not, you know, giving them the appropriate knowledge from the appropriate people. Yeah. It's very, very, very simple. I have a very, I use a lot of analogies, very clear analogy. You guys are the neurologists and I'm the cardiologist you guys should not be giving heart advice and I will not give brain advice. Like it's that simple, nothing else to say. And let me, I'll, I'll tell you something that happened yesterday. I had an appraisal come in $4,000 light the other day. Okay. $4,000. Now my assistant just kind of like handled it and sent it in. And in that situation, like $4,000 didn't matter. But $4,000 can actually matter. If a file is really, really tight, that could have a huge impact. Now, again, like I said to her, like, I know it's only $4,000, but if an appraisal ever comes in light, like a dollar, you need to tell me. So you, like, I cannot stress enough how something very, very innocent as a realtor, you're like, oh yeah, it doesn't matter. It's like, it's $4,000, like who cares? can have a massive impact on, on a file. I'm the cardiologist. You guys are the neurologist. I am not going to give cardiology advice. You do not give, you know, um, uh, I'm not going to give brain surgery advice and like nothing else to talk about. Right. And, and it's an open door both ways and it needs to be like the neurologist should be talking to the cardiologist, just 100%. not, just not guessing what your advice would be. 
Like, even though people are listening to this podcast or watching yeah. this video, yeah. just because Elon's giving you the right information about how it works doesn't mean that now you're a pro who can now tell your client exactly Never. what to do. Um, this, this oh, let, I'll, I'll give you, sorry, I just going back, going back to that example, I had a situation where, anyway, um, I had a very wealthy client. And again, every client is very different. You, you were talking about Murphy's Law. Basically, he's buying a house in two months and he's buying it for cash. He's got like savings investments, he's buying it for cash and he wants to refinance it the next day. Why does he want to refinance it the next day? Because he's buying it for 2 million. He's going to pull out 1.6 million, invest that 1.6 million. Now that $1.6 million mortgage is tax deductible. But if he bought it as a purchase, it would not be taxed. So I'm calling like my, my, I have an amazing senior underwriter, uh, amazing. And he even said to me, Elon, you're crazy. This guy doesn't even own the house yet. And you want to refinance it. I'm like, yes, we're going to do it. And Audi said no and BMW and Kia and Tesla, but Nissan did it. Like that's the level of like complexity where I'm looking at it again, like airport security, it's a bottle of water. What's the issue? And they're like, no, no, no. So I am refinancing a property that the client does not own yet. Hmm. So, so how does this play in to using that analogy? I mean, if it's, yeah. air, I'll try to stick with airport security. You can I've, airports, I've a, medical. Yeah. I've got cars, a solid whatever you want. In my head right now. Yeah. Um, when someone comes to you and says, I want to get this bottle of water in. Yeah. And you know, that's not the thing to do. Like, yeah. obviously it's your job to serve the client within the rules, but yeah. where, like, is that where your line is? Like, is there gray area in your profession with things like the example you just gave where most yes. people will say, don't do this. You shouldn't do this, but it's not yeah. against the rules. Like right. how does your role play into the towing the line element of what a client wants versus what you think is appropriate versus legal. Maybe it's legal, but not appropriate. Well, so, I mean, I don't want to get you in way, trouble here. <laughs> no, no, no. That's okay. Part of the, part of the, you know, way I articulate what a good mortgage broker does is you have to understand some laws are unbreakable. Some laws are bendable and some laws are like, yeah, you could just sort of go around them and there's like loopholes. Right. So, and again, this is kind of good context for realtors, the tightest, tightest, hardest, you know, very, very little we can do is, um, is high ratio. Um, when someone is buying a property with less than 20% down, there are 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 banks, credit unions, trust companies, insurance companies that will approve the mortgage. But all of those approvals are subject to a, a mortgage default insurer, specifically CMHC, um, uh, SAGEN, which was known as Genworth, and then Canada Guarantee. If those three insurers decline the file, you're toast. When you have 20% down, that's where it's like, we have credit unions. Well, guess what? Credit unions are not federally regulated. They're provincially regulated. They don't need to stress test the mortgage. So like if a client says to me, hey, Elon, I don't want to stress test the mortgage. It's like, great, we'll go to a credit union. No problem, right? So like there are ways that we can like get around things. Um, you know, I don't know if it's a perfect example, but like I want to bring this bottle of water on the plane. Okay, no problem. You're going to take a private jet. The private jet is seven times more expensive and you're allowed to bring on your own water onto a private jet. Right. Like, I don't know, there's, there's, there's ways to do things. Um, and, and again, part of it is being, you know, a very diligent underwriter and, and just understanding what is and is not possible. Um, I heard of a case where, you know, the lender needed the money in Canada for 30 days and the bank wire was sent 29 days before closing. And that was like an AML thing. And the bank said, no, like we're not doing it. And they needed to extend the closing by one day. Hmm. Like even, you know, it's kind of funny, but like, it's so technical. Um, you know, I give this example that depending on the bank, they need 90 days of bank statements or, or, or three months of bank statements. Well, February has 28 days. So all of a sudden you've got February, Jan, Feb, March. Well, wait a minute. Now they want to see December because February is only 28 days. Like that's how technical it is. And that's where, again, as a realtor, you could be like, oh, I've talked with Elon a thousand times. He always says three months of bank statements. 
And then that lender is going to be like, well, wait a minute, February is 28 days. We want to see, you know, December 31 and December 30, but that guy is a corporation and for tax reasons transferred, you know, a million dollars on December 31st before their year end. Like now we've got a massive problem because you took something that's like super innocent and, and February is 28 days. Right. That's a, that's a perfect example of something. Yeah, it's a perfect example. Like even again, my assistant, $4,000 light on appraisal. It's like, oh, it's no problem. But like, it could have been a problem. Right. Well, that's it. I mean, I come from an accounting background before this and a dollar one way or the other could mean a million one way, 999,000 the other. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but on paper it's one, but yeah, hundred percent. So, okay. We're, we're, we're coming up right on an hour now. I'm going to put one last call out to anybody who's got questions in the chat. Um, do you have any final sage words of advice for the Ooh, industry sage words. or, and, or, I mean, we didn't really talk a lot and, and we're not in the position. I know we've said we're not crystal ball readers, but there's so much volatility. There's so many world things going on. We talked about it a bit at the beginning. Where do you see, if you had to guess right now, the rest of this year, shaping up the next six months? in terms three months tomorrow, yeah. <laughs> whatever's, whatever. I mean, I, I'm going to answer your question differently. I think Toronto is a great city long-term. I think if you're buying real estate focused on the next three to six months, like you've got the wrong mindset. I think, I, as I said earlier, now is a really good time to buy in the context that in February, there were 22 offers and now there might be four. So I think that you're getting more inventory, more choice, a little more power. I think now is a good time to buy if you're in it for kind of, you know, I say three to five years plus. I think if you're buying real estate with with under a three to five year minimum time horizon, like you're already like not on the right foot, I would say so. Would that be with these, and I mentioned this earlier in an email to you, have you seen, because I've started to hear that when we talk about the three to four year time frame, the one yeah. spot that people are getting a bit burned is with pre-con speculation. Yeah. Yeah. And a, a lot of people were buying when it was the cool thing to do. Yeah. The prices are super high. Like now, especially a new development comes out 600 square feet for, you know, 900 yes. grand. Yes. Is there, is there when people are doing it with the intent, especially to like, I'm going to assign this and I never yeah. actually want to close. Yeah. Have you started seeing people who are in a bad spot? Or do you foresee that happening? Because a lot of us yeah. want to deal in pre-con, like that's the yeah. golden ticket. Yeah. It seems like that might be one spot that looking three to four years out, there might not be the appreciation yeah. people expect. Yeah, so um, great question. I'll, um, you know, I, I'm very proud to turn away business. Um, I sometimes get a call like, Hey, Daniel, call me. I want to buy pre-con. Um, I can tell you about pre-con. Rule number one, work with the lender that's at the builder site hmm. because they might have special arrangements. They might have special rates, but I cannot get you a mortgage that's sort of guaranteed for three years, four years, five years. So you like... I don't think you should be working with a mortgage broker on a pre-con unless it's literally closing in the kind of next, I'll say 12 months. If it's like two, three, four years. So number one, like really, if you have a mortgage broker, go to them, but then let them guide you to a trusted referral partner. But in my mind, you need to have, I'm going to use the word hard approval. You need to have a hard approval. If you get laid off, if the property doesn't appraise, if you're cre- like, you need to make sure that three years from now, the market tanks, your job is gone. You've done everything you can to protect you. I cannot do that as a mortgage broker. I obviously have my network that can help with that. Um, very, very important advice. And that's not an issue now, Daniel, because properties are through the roof. Anything you bought 6, 12, 24, 36 months ago is like way, way more. But I think if you're buying new condo construction at 15, you know, 17, 1900 a square foot, and it's closing in three to five years, you need to protect yourself with the mortgage today, in my opinion. Right. I agree. I agree. Okay. Well, can you tell everybody where to find you? If they don't know yet, it doesn't matter. Sure. We're telling them again. We're going to put I this mean, in the can notes. I do this like this. this, this oh yeah, this. I said <laughs> like my. It's like my cool. Um, so I'm one of the the co-owners and co-founders of Mortgage Outlet. Uh, my name is Elon Weintraub. Uh, my email is Elon E L A N at mortgageoutlet.ca. 
I am all over. Uh, Daniel was joking about this, but I'm on. You'll you might see me on CTV News, CP24, um, Globe and Mail. I actually actually I will give myself a plug. I do a special seminar for realtors, uh, mortgage nightmares for realtors, and how to prevent them. I presented the Toronto Real Estate Board the uh, OMDRAB, which is the um, Oakville uh, Milton Real Estate Board. I presented. The Brampton Real Estate Board. So look out at your real estate boards. There are others that I am not, but um, I also do give, I will say, um, I give monthly seminars to a lot of real estate brokerages and real estate teams. Happy to do that if you want a more of a intimate discussion, but um, hopefully that helps. Absolutely. Well, no, you're, you're a great asset to our industry as well as your own. So I thank, thank you, you for your time. Thank you. I, I wish you the best of luck on the daytime Emmy for all the stuff that you're doing with the news programs. It's coming. Thank it's you. coming soon enough. I'm trying. <laughs> and uh, yeah, this is, uh, this is, I guess we've cleared the hour. We did it. We made it. Finish line is here. Thank, Thank you. you again. And okay. uh, we will see everybody next week. Level up, 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 level up,